Hey, what's up, Military Millionaires? This is another episode co-hosted with Alex Felice, and today we are interviewing Justin Tahoromani, and this is just really cool because he got into real estate, and he kind of started buying some properties here and there, and then he bought a huge farm with no land on it, other or with no buildings on it, other than some chicken coops, and he just slowly built more and more and more and now he's got Airbnbs and his primary residence and just a lot of cool stuff to unpack in this about creativity and just not putting yourself into a box. So just a really cool episode. As always, show notes will be found at from military to millionaire.com slash podcast. Now relax and enjoy the show. You're listening to the Military Millionaire Podcast, a show about real estate investing for the working class. Stay tuned as we explore ways to help you improve your finances, build wealth through real estate, and become a person that is worth knowing. Hey guys, today's show sponsor is Rentometer. Now, Rentometer, for those of you not familiar, is a phenomenal tool to help you understand what you can get for rent in your market. Now, I've done some pretty extensive articles and YouTube videos on just this company because I love them and I absolutely love everything their app does because it will break down not only what your property could rent for based on just the zip code, the size and the the address, neighborhood, whatever. It'll give you comps and it'll even let you with the pro membership, which you can get some free trials of, it will let you pull up pictures of the actual houses that are competitive to you so you can look at it and see okay well if theirs rents for a thousand and i'm looking at theirs and theirs is better well then i might be able i might have to go 950 but if i'm looking at their property and mine's nicer maybe i can go 1050. i'll tell you what the rentometer membership will pay for itself within the first month of adjusting a property's rent in most cases because it's not very expensive and i have seen people be able to charge 50 100 200 more in rent just by understanding their market and their property. So definitely look into Rentometer. I will leave a link down in the description if you're interested. It's no cost at all for you to play around with it and it will save you or make you tons and tons of money. So rentometer.com. Now back to this episode. Hey, what's up everybody? It's Dave and Alex from the Military Millionaire Podcast and we are here with Justin Tahorami. Wow, Taho Romani, I messed it up. I even practiced it, and I'm not going to edit that out because I just want people to know I'm not perfect, and I'll let you fix it. But who is a 13-year Army officer veteran, and he is a buy-and-hold real estate investor. And he uh, he actually was recommended to me by Alex Felice, and we were looking for some people to uh, volunteer, really, to, to put up with the two of us co-hosting, and he volunteered at the same time Alex recommended him. So here we are. Uh, Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. And... Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself, but also correct how I mispronounced your name since I butchered it and I'm human. <laughs> I, actually, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously used to it, but it's uh, pronounced Tahil Romani. So, okay. yeah, my wife and I are uh, both active duty Army officers. Um, we've been investing in real estate for about the last uh, 10 years or so. Uh, most of it exclusively in Fayetteville or the greater Fayetteville, North Carolina area. Um, we've kind of done a little bit of everything. I mean, we've done you know, obviously single family, you know, long-term rentals, but we've also gotten into uh, purchasing undeveloped land, doing some development and um, also short-term rentals. So we have experience in a little bit of everything, um, which I feel is kind of what makes um, what, what we've done a little bit unique uh, as compared to some, you know, some other more traditional investors. 
So what got you into the undeveloped land? I guess would be my first question. It's kind of a, it's not like a market, you know, like norm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, we can start there because I think a lot of the other stuff that we've done has been talked about a lot. Um, and so it wouldn't be a whole lot of value added, but, um, yeah, essentially. So we, my wife and I are both from the West coast. We're kind of used to living in, you know, you know, subdivisions where the houses are right on top of each other and nobody has any space. And that's just how it is, you know? Um, so when we moved to North Carolina, uh, initially we were in a master plan community. It was kind of, kind of similar. Um, we were actually in a townhouse, uh, and we had two really big dogs. And so, um, came pretty evident, you know, that it just wasn't going to work. We we're going to have to find something else. Uh, so we actually found a home on four acres, which, uh, when you're going from, you know, living in a subdivision to living on four acres, I mean, it just seems like, you know, just an enormous amount of land. So um, that was just a house that we bought because it fit our family and it, you know, fit, you know, our lifestyle. But it really kind of opened up our eyes to, you know, what it's like to have that kind of freedom, not living in an HOA, having space, um, you know, not being right on top of your neighbor. So in 2013, my wife and I both deployed to Afghanistan. And, you know, during this time we had, we had been doing, you know, traditional real estate investment. And, and so I was always keeping up on kind of uh, new listings and things that were coming on the market. And I just happened across a, um, a, a farm that had been listed by a local bank. Uh, what had happened is it was a poultry farm and the husband passed away and the wife just couldn't keep up with it. Um, so it fell into disrepair and those, those of you that come from farming backgrounds kind of would under, you know, understand this, but, um, in the poultry business, they require you to continually update your facilities and it's, it's really capital intensive. And so if you can't do that, um, you know, you lose contracts with the big producers. And so that's kind of what happened and she just couldn't keep up with it. And, uh, they, like I said, they fell into disrepair. So the entire farm got foreclosed on. And it was 38 acres and eight parcels. So all eight parcels were contiguous and um, the bank was just selling it all together uh, along with the dilapidated chicken houses, which uh, were, were 40 feet wide and 500 feet long. And there were two of them. So, um, so I, I happened across it and I, I think, you know, um, we had had no experience in developing land um, or buying land for that matter. So I did as much due diligence as I knew how to do. Um, luckily it was an accounting that I was really familiar with. So I understood the zoning, I understood you know, what it could be uh, used for. Um, and we, I did as much due diligence as I could from Afghanistan and we ended up, um, putting in an offer and negotiating with the bank, closing on it. My wife was actually on a 12 month deployment and I was on a nine month deployment. So I came back early and was the first one to see the land. And I mean, if going from, uh, living in a subdivision to four acres was eye opening, you know, stepping foot on 38 acres. I mean, it was just overwhelming. Um, you lived in it? You lived into it? so there was no house there. It was, it was just a farm at that point. So, uh, what we ended up doing was it, you know, the farm joins a, a, a subdivision. We actually bought a house in that subdivision that backed up to the land, uh, was what we did first. So that way we were right next to the land. We could, spend we spent the next two years after buying it um cleaning it up because it was a mess i mean the bank had partially taken down the chicken houses but i mean as you can imagine it was it, the, the front 10 acres was like a it was like a dump basically so uh, we had to clean it all up it took about a year and a half or so and during that time we just kind of got to know that you know 
the land, you know, it, it's got, um, you know, pluses and minuses as far as, you know, where, you know, where you can develop it and stuff. So we took that time just to kind of understand the land and figure out, you know, what was the best course of action, where could we develop? Um, and we started out by building um, our primary house out there first. So that's where we got started. Um, and uh, that was our, my first experience and our first experience building from the ground up uh, and doing a development. But what we did that was unique was that we, um, we designed it so that on the first floor of the house, it was our primary residence. And on the second floor, it could be, it was separated and had a separate entrance. So it could be, you know, rented out, you know, completely um, separate from the main house. And then we also built it with a three car detached garage that had an apartment on top. So essentially we could live in uh, the first floor and have two rentals or two spaces for family to come visit us. And it wouldn't disrupt our, you know, day to day living in the main house. Um, but isn't it 38 and, years? What do you, I mean, what do you do with the rest? What are property taxes and how do you maintain all that land? So before we bought the, that's a good question. Before we bought the land, uh, the bank had an agreement uh, with a local, one of the adjoining property owners that, uh, that is in hay production. So about 15 of the acres is maintained by him. And the agreement is he gets the hay, he also maintains all the fields. So we don't have to do that. You build that um, into the easement of the deed? No, that's uh, that's more of a you know gentleman's agreement, you know handshake yeah, agreement. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. Uh, My uh, yeah. father-in-law is a big-time cattle farmer, and that's what he does for all his neighbors. Is like, hey, I'll if they own cattle, the deal is like, I get four bales, you get one, and I'll do mm -hmm. everything. And if they don't own cattle, then it's like, hey, X dollars or X X cents per bale, and I'll take care of your land or whatever. Exactly. And, you know, it, it's, it, it's incredibly expensive to get into farming. I mean, it, it's something that, you know, I think is a great, a great hobby, but it's not really, a, it, it has to be a hobby because you're not going to make money at it. I mean, especially with how, you know, intensive capital intensive it is with buying equipment, buying tractors, buying implements, your time. Um, you know, it's just one of those things that, you know, generationally, if you're, if you're in it and you have access to that uh, kind of stuff, you can make it work. But for us, the agreement that we have with, you know, our adjoining property owner or landowner, you know, works out for us. And so at a future time, if that changes, you know, we'll obviously have to you know, figure something else out. But for right now, we're not having to physically maintain all 38 acres. You know, we maintain probably four to five acres. Um, but property taxes. so I'm sorry, property taxes. So we're in a property taxes in Harnett County are not high. Um, they're much lower than Cumberland County. Um, but even beyond that, we're in what uh, North Carolina has a present use program, which um, if you're in agriculture or um, um, forestry, they give you an additional break on property taxes. So our property taxes are very low. Nice. Um, but yeah, getting back to the house, so that that initial development, um, when we built it, we kind of built it the way we did because you know it was going to it was going to cost a lot of money to build a house anyways. We wanted to build it the way we wanted it and to give ourselves some flexibility. So we figured that we'd have the extra you know places to rent out or keep for family. Well, once the house was finished and we moved in, we quickly realized that okay, we have this whole place upstairs that we don't really use. We have this whole place above the garage we don't really use. Our family they come and visit, you know. A few times a year so we really need to figure out something to do you know to you know utilize that space better so I decided to put it up on Airbnb and 
I'm sure Alex, you understand. I mean, we're not in a tourist destination. I mean, I think we're probably as far from a tourist destination as you could uh, imagine. So I really wasn't expecting a whole lot. Um, but from the moment that I put that unit up on Airbnb in 2016, I mean, those two units have been booked solid. Um, Let me ask you a question. Uh, because I know that Airbnb is in flux, well, everywhere. So this is a good conversation because I'm sure a lot of people listening are thinking about it or involved. Um, mm -hmm. But I also know that, well, I'm watching to see how uh, the saturation of the market changes, uh, not just profitability, but usability. Meaning when you started 2016, there was, uh, I, don't, I think you have the numbers on this actually. Uh, there was only X amount of, you know, total Airbnb units in the area, whereas now it's like three times that. So my question is, do you think that, uh, do, do you, do you notice that at all? Or is it like, is it a, an untapped demand where, and we have a lot of road left to go where you don't think there's any saturation problems? So I think I'm going to answer that from two different avenues. I think the first avenue is uh, to answer your question that you initially asked. Yes, I mean, it, it has grown exponentially. I think when we started, uh, and I think Carly is really the one that got the numbers but and has been tracking it. But uh, I, I think when we, we both started back in 2016, there were maybe like 90 full unit rentals in the greater Fayetteville area. And I, if you look today, we're probably approaching 400. Um, so, so yeah, that's significant growth uh, in just a short amount of time. But um, I mean, obviously, there's the, the popularity factor. I think people look at it as, oh, you know, a, a get rich quick, you know, kind of scheme or a way to, um, you know, generate more income than they would, all, you know, alternatively through long term rentals. But, you know, realistically, I think to really be successful in Airbnb long term, um, A, you can't just rely on Airbnb. Because just like anything else, if you rely on one, you know, one system, if if something happens with that system, then you know, what is your alternative? So people that are buying, you know, properties and you know, with the sole purpose of putting it up on Airbnb, or they're they're qualifying their property by the income that they think they're going to get from Airbnb, those are the ones that I feel like are going to suffer the most uh, if things change. Um, now to get on to do do I feel like it's going to be oversaturated? I mean, possibly, but. Uh, I think, you know, the way I look at it is that when we built our house, the extra two, like say Airbnb goes away and you can no longer do short-term rentals. We're just saying like worst case scenario. Um, you know, I always, you know, we're always going to need a primary residence, right? So if those other two units go underutilized, it's not, you know, they're not, it's not a complete loss to me, you know? Um, but the other part of it is that, um, you know, I think agritourism is a big, um, you know, potential. There's a lot of potential for agritourism. And in North Carolina, agritourism has special exemptions that um, where you have protection from the state as far as what you can, what you can and can't do on your farm. So, um, I mean, that's not something that we've had to explore because Airbnb um, in our area hasn't been regulated yet. But if it were to be regulated, I think that you know, that's an avenue that we can look into as far as um, utilizing exemptions that North Carolina has for agritourism to continue doing short-term rentals. Yeah, I think you made a good point about short-term rentals. And actually, I just wrote an article for Bigger Pockets uh, talking about Airbnbs are so overrated right now. <laughs> uh, and some of my point was, and you, 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 everybody, I think, it, well, if you haven't heard my rants about this, uh, been, you know, it'll come out of this article, come out. But I think uh, what you said is important that uh, Airbnb is great when you have an asset that works to make a higher profit margin using Airbnb. 
What I think is the risk is when you buy an asset expecting a higher profit margin from Airbnb, like exactly like you said, and because there's so much hype in it right now and because, um, well, it's new and we have a really weird situation, you know, it's like the Uber problem, right? Like the taxis just had no idea how much decentralization was going to impact their business. And so I think uh, Airbnb has a similar you know, situation, maybe not as prevalent, but it's like there might be more demand than we thought with Airbnb. So I say 400 units versus 90. Oh, that's so much. But it might be like, well, what's the real number? We don't know. It could be 1600. Right. It could yeah. be you, you could quadruple it again and not feel a dent. So I just don't know how much demand is really there. And then Airbnb also can is, in some ways can create demand, especially as competition increases and the margins come down and it becomes cheaper, which is which is yeah. what's and I think the other thing, oh, I'm sorry, we're going to say something, David. Oh, I was just going to say that the user base for Airbnb has exploded too. So, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, we talk, We I know Alex likes to talk smack about it, but I'm another prime example right now. I'm in a four bed house and I've got a downstairs guest right now that's booked for two and a half weeks. And I've got an upstairs guest that's booked until tomorrow with one coming in on Wednesday because I was able to yeah. like, you know, it, I didn't buy this thinking I was going to make a killing off Airbnb but it's working out for me and it's working out for me pretty well. I don't talk smack about Airbnb in general. What I do, but I think what you guys are doing is the perfect is the intended way to use Airbnb. And I think that's perfect. If you have a place, look, I have a spare room. I have a spare, you know, lot. I have a spare detached garage. I have a spare loft, whatever. Go for it. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. Even if you have one or two rentals and you, you turn them into Airbnb, it's like, go for it. You know I mean? You might have more work, um, but you might make more money, <clears throat> especially in the short run. My complaint with Airbnb is simply the people who take it too far, right? It's like it's like creative financing gone awry kind of thing where you're like, oh, I just try to make things so complicated to squeeze out an extra return. And it's like, I just don't think it's I, over the long run. I think for people who are using Airbnb as an investment medium, specifically Airbnb as an investment medium, I think your your best days are right now and they're going to deter, they're going to, uh, they're going to decline from here. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, part of it too is kind of understanding how to how to capitalize on Airbnb and short-term rentals and furnished rentals. Um, you know, once we once we had our two units that we had rented, I knew that there was demand, um, and so subsequently we built a duplex on the front part of our property, kind of designed for you know more for short-term rentals. There, you know, it's one one bedroom, one bathroom um, units, one on each side. Um, those also continued to you know stay booked. They, I think we op opened it to bookings in 2017 and they've continued to stay booked. Part, part of the draw is the farm though. Part of the draw is people want to be away from um, the subdivision. They want to uh, meet up with their, their husband, their wife, their boyfriend, their girlfriend that's stationed at Fort Bragg and they're, they're geographically separated and they, and they don't, they don't want to be in a hotel room. They want to come out to um, you know, our farm and spend some time, you know, just being away from, the hustle of being in town. Um, so I think that that's part of it, but, you know, to kind of get back to your point is, um, you know, so I kind of, I kind of knew that, you know, at least for the short term, there's, there's a, a need for it. Um, but once we got, you know, past the development of the duplex, I mean, it was getting pretty capital intensive at that point. I mean, it is expensive to build, you know, from the ground up new construction. Um, so initially I was like, okay, hey, how am I being, just like you said, Alex, what are you doing the rest of your land? I wanted to find a, a way to utilize you know, the land that wasn't being used. So I tried to, um, I tried to open up an RV park on the front uh, 10 acres of our, of our land, which is, 
it's not a permitted use where we're at, but you can get a special use permit. So I applied for the special use permit, had all the plan, plans together, um, went before the county, you know, <laughs> pleaded my case. Uh, but uh, turns out that, that the neighborhood, you know, neighborhood didn't want an RV park. <laughs> so basically, they came out. You got an HOA to shut you down, basically? Well, so I mean, you know, special use permits, you know, the, the whole purpose behind them is to make sure that you know what you're doing it, it may it may work from a, a need standpoint but the county wants to know does it work from a community standpoint and, and i agree with that i think that that's important um you know most of the people in our area have been there for a long time um and so we're probably we are the, the newest landowners you know in that area so you don't want to come in and you know kind of rock the boat i mean hi welcome to the neighborhood <laughs> do you like my trailer park yeah exactly so um, you know, so I was kind of still licking my wounds from that. I mean, I thought that was going to be a really good, um, use for that front of the property. And I came home, it was, it was, it was probably within a week of, of, you know, that getting shut down. Um, and I was, I was online. One of my other side hobbies is buying and selling government surplus stuff. I don't know if you guys, you know, you guys are both in the military and I'm sure you, you know, you know about it, but there's websites where the government auctions off, you know, excess property and, you know, I used to buy it and sell it on the side as a hobby. Well, I logged in one day and we'd had some pretty significant storms over the last couple of years, uh, like four or five years in North Carolina. And so FEMA had bought a whole bunch of mobile homes to house people that were displaced during the storms. And it just turned out that they were selling like, they were selling like 15 or 20 of them about an hour from my house. And I knew from experience that mobile homes were permitted use and I could have up to two of them on the front of my property. So I started thinking like, okay, I can buy these mobile homes. They're only a year old, put them on the property and maybe I can turn those into short-term rentals too. And, you know, from a capital standpoint, it, you know, I could do it, you know, you know, really affordably. So I did that. I bought two, uh, two manufactured homes from the government, put them on the front of our property. And, uh, I'd like that they're only a year old. So, I mean, I, I think one of them, I changed out the carpet and stuff. What'd you pay uh, for furnished. Uh, so one of them was about, I think one of them was about 18,000. That was a three bedroom, two bathroom. The other one was about 15,000. That was a two bedroom, two bathroom. Um, but that sounds cheap, uh, but you kind of got to double that price because once you think, you know, you got to get them transported, you got to get permits, you got to get it set up, you got to install septic systems, you got to install water taps, you got to install water lines, you got to get them anchored, you got to get them inspected. So by the time all that's said and done, I mean, you're probably into them for about 25,000 to 28,000 each. Um, oh, geez. So much. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot more, it's a lot more than 15,000, but. Um, but so that I furnished those, turned those into short-term rentals and that kind of filled a niche for us because all of our other short-term rentals were one bedroom, one bathroom, uh, which really worked for traveling nurses, people, you know, that were on TUI, um, contractors, but it didn't really work for the family, you know, PCSing or the family that is moving in and hasn't found a place to rent yet. So it filled a gap for us, uh, by off being able to offer two bedroom and three bedroom, uh, short-term rentals. And I was a little bit nervous at first because I was like, ah, are people going to want it? Are people going to be turned off by the fact that it's a, it's a mobile home? Um, and really they're not. I mean, I think more people are, they're just happy that it's in the location that it's in, you know? Um, so I think location is, is really important. Um, but those, okay. So Alex, we're all into those to say $30,000 each and we rent them for about 1250 a month, you know? So, I mean, that's a pretty good return when you consider, um, 
you know, the alternative of renting it long term. Yeah, for sure. I like that idea. And again, you know, kind of that's a blend of, you know, the process that I talked negatively about earlier about buying specifically for Airbnb, but at the same time, well, look, when you're spending 30 grand, geez, you can afford the, not to say 30 grand isn't no money, but it's enough that you can, well, look, if you rent, if you, if, if Airbnb went away to tomorrow and you rented it out for 800 bucks a month, you'd still be really, really good shape if you did a long-term rental. So, I mean, it's hard to lose. I like yeah, that you took 30 plus acres and went from 30 plus acres with chicken farm to seven units. Yeah, I mean, it's been a process. It's been a lot of work. Um, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna downplay it. Uh, it's taken a lot of hours of, I mean, just from a research standpoint, like what can the land be used for? What you know, understanding the soils, you know, understanding um, what the county's gonna allow you to do, what they're not gonna allow you to do. I mean, luckily, Harnett County is is a little bit easier to work with. You start getting the Fayetteville and Cumberland County, and, and they're just the next county over, but it's substantially more difficult to do things um so but I, I think a lot of what i've done is just paid for an education you know i mean i i had never bought land before i had never built a house before i'd never done a design build i'd never done s you know short-term rentals and, and everything that i've done i think had it failed i still would have learned you know so much more than i could have ever learned from reading in a book or um you know, listening to somebody else who's, who's done it. So let me ask a question. Cause I, we didn't really talk about why you got into real estate in the first place. Um, yeah. and so everybody gets into real estate in the, for some reason, obviously. Um, but I'm curious how this differs from what your intended plan was. Cause it doesn't sound like this is an intended plan at all. So I'm curious, how does it go from, mm, maybe it was loosely part of your plan, but tell me about that, that change, that experience going from here's why I wanted to get into real estate versus here's where I'm at now and how they, they kind of, different so i think what's different about my story is that um real estate has always been um kind of a part of my life i mean because when i was growing up my my parents owned real estate um my dad would take me to his rental properties and uh, i mean at the, at the time it felt like he was you know you know forcing you know forcing me to uh <laughs> i don't know work for free you know child labor uh you know i'd be painting houses and be helping him with plumbing, you know, repairs, landscaping, you know, fence repair, you name it, we did it. I mean, he did everything himself. Um, but that's what I understand. I mean, real estate is what I, what I saw my parents use to, um, you know, reach financial freedom. And so that's, I didn't understand the stock market. I didn't understand, uh, you know, mutual funds. I didn't understand the TSP when I first came in the military. The one thing that I understood was real estate. I knew that, uh, and I knew enough about it to realize that as long as you, as long as you're buying it right and you're willing to hold on to it and weather the storms, I mean, you, you're going to, you're going to be all right. Um, so I wouldn't say that I went into my real estate investing career with a, uh, a specific plan and just kind of uh, developed and grown as I, as I've gone and, you know, tried to make the best decisions that I can. Um, but yeah, like you said, we got a little bit off track with, with buying the farm and, and, you know, doing these, doing these other things, but it was an opportunity at that time that that opportunity was present. We had, you know, I felt like we had to take it because, um, you know, you look at all the things that people are really, um, going after now, what, what's the hottest thing is, is mobile home parks. 
Well, guess what? You can't build a mobile home park today. And if you can, it's, it's so expensive that it just doesn't make sense, right? So back in the 60s and 70s, you know, when, you know, people were investing in real estate and mobile home parks were something that were the norm and you could do, the people that did it when they could do it are the ones that are benefiting today because you can't do it anymore. I wanted to buy that land and develop it as quickly as I could because at that time I can do it. 20 years from now, Harnett County may be more difficult than Cumberland County. You know, it, it, you don't know what, you know, what you won't be able to do in the future. So that's why I wanted to do it now. Yeah, I like that. Uh, I've been hot on this the last few weeks, actually, about pivoting, 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 especially in real estate, you know, for listeners who are maybe new or, you know, just trying to ramp up or having just maybe gotten started, you probably start to realize um, real estate is in peak mania right now, especially since 2017. And this isn't to say that. Um, this isn't about a prediction of the future. It's just like, look, it's popular and that prices are up and it's been, uh, that's been exacerbated by low interest rates. And so I say all that to say, you saw an opportunity and you're like, look, this isn't part of the plan, but it's an opportunity that I have that nobody else, I mean, for better, yet that specific opportunity, nobody else had the, op had the chance to get it. You had the chance to get it. Nobody else is running after it, right? What's everybody running after in Fayetteville? Three twos that do burr. That's basically yeah. it. And so it's like, look, you can compete against everybody else. Or you like, like you said, mobile homes are really popular right now. Well, you can compete against everybody else, but, or you can go off. It's, it's uh, you know, it's like the low hanging fruit. The low hanging fruit has no juice. The fruit that everybody's competing for has no juice. You know, every, all the, if you're sitting there trying to pick apples, it's like the, the, the giraffe comes along and gets that one way up there that nobody else, you know, is fighting over. And so I love that you were able to say, I want to get into real estate and I'm flexible about the capacity in which I do that. And so you're like, look, I can make this, I found this great opportunity and I can run with it. And, and having the land, you know, obviously in 2016, I had no idea that in 2017, um, I'm sorry, we bought the land in 2013. So in 2013, I had no idea that in 2017, this opportunity to buy mobile homes was going to be there. Right. But had that opportunity come and those mobile homes were there, but I had nowhere to put them. I mean, that was, that was a, that was an advantage that I had is that, you know, the opportunity presented itself and I had already, you know, positioned myself, if you will, to have the place to put those, even though I didn't know at the time that that was going to happen, you know? Yes. Uh, to, to, well, David's still here, right? David here. <laughs> I've been trying to talk, but there's this Alex guy on here and I have to like build a code where I think I can mute you as, Oh man, I can mute you. Oh, that's great. It's going to be awesome. Woo! We'll be back with the show in just a minute, but I wanted to take a brief second and say that, look, you are already obviously investing in yourself by listening to this podcast. But if you can't figure out how to get past all that daunting crap that you just don't know how to sort through and you're trying to get started in real estate investing and you're just stuck. I, I mean, it happens to all of us. It's daunting. You don't know what you don't know. You don't know everything there is to know, and you don't know really where to find all the information. So that is why I created the Real Estate Investing for Beginners 0 to 1 course, which is solely designed to get you from, I want to invest in real estate to, holy crap, I have a rental and it's cash flowing. And this course is not going to be anything super complicated that you won't be able to understand. It is just designed to teach you how to build a team, find investments, finance investments, conduct due diligence, close on the investment, and then operate it so that you can enter the real estate investing world smoothly. So if that sounds like something that interests you, definitely check out the link below and it's cheap as hell right now. So <laughs> I was just going to say, you know, people talk about focus all the time, right? Like you hear people all the time talking about you have to be a, like 
you need to buy three, two single family, this, 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 like focus, 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 focus as like the end all be all and people who don't focus fail. Uh, and I understand where they're coming from, but it doesn't sound like you did that. Uh, and I'm kind of the same way. Like I've dipped my feet in a lot of different pools. Uh, sometimes like the Airbnb, it was just like, well, this makes sense. So let's figure, let's learn something new. But I just curious, since you clearly have kind of been open-minded and not so much focused on a single style of investing, what your thoughts are on the idea that you have to be focused into one niche, or do you think it's helped you to be more creative, open-minded? And I mean, I feel like it's been really helpful to be, uh, to be agile, I guess, if you will, um, for lack of a better word, just because look, three, three, two single family homes are always going to be there. Uh, I mean that they're not going anywhere. Um, I think if you can capitalize on the things that may not be here forever, um, that's where you can really get ahead because, and the other thing is, uh, I mean, I think what we haven't talked about is during this entire time, I mean, the bigger pockets phenomena was, was occurring, you know, there used to be a time in Fayetteville where you could scoop up a, you know, a three bedroom, two bathroom without any competition under list price. And it was just it was just an everyday thing, uh, you know, and, and that's not how it is today. Today, uh, I don't even look at VA foreclosures or HUD homes anymore. It's just not worth my time, uh, you know, because a million eyeballs are on those same listings and, and I'm not willing to pay what, what they're asking for them. So, well, to add to that, to add to that, because it's not just popularity, right? It's also, and this is what I feel so bad for about new real estate investors. In 2012, the banks started unloading just massive volumes of foreclosures off their books. Right? And it took them five years to get them all off the books uh, from the 2008 collapse. So 2017 is when they finally started drying up. And so combined popularity with lack of inventory is what really, and so I, I'm with you what you're saying. It's like people are driving prices up. It's like, yeah, and the, the, they, they found out that it was popular from uh, the high volume of foreclosures that are available. But by the time they got on the market, the foreclosures are all gone. So now people are fighting over regular prices. It, it's, a, it's a very interesting situation, but sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So, all, I mean, all that just to say that I think, you know, the plain Jane, you know, three bedroom, two bathroom, single family, you know, investing, it's always going to be there. We continue to do that even through, um, you know, some of our short term rental and, um, you know, other real estate endeavors, you know, but to me, I, I can spend, you know, I can spend 20 minutes a day or 15 minutes a day on, on Zillow and on, you know, Craigslist and Facebook marketplace and realtor.com. And I, you know, I can see if there's a property that, that has a glimmer of hope, you know, pretty quickly, you know, it just doesn't take that long to do that. So, um, you know, that's just kind of an everyday thing for me that I, I just check out, you know, what's, what's new on the market and what might have, you know, some potential. And really lately, the only thing I've been having any luck with are, you know, for sale by owner or, um, you know, really that's it <laughs> for sale by owner. <laughs> well, and I think, you know, I'm just to clarify for people listening to this, I am not recommending that you go and buy a, your first buy and hold rental, then buy a flip, then start wholesaling. What I'm recommending is that in the buy and hold class or in the flip class, you don't necessarily need to drive down into a specific bedroom or size or if you're focused on buy and hold and you understand the numbers very clearly you can make a farm work with a triplex or build a duplex or buy mobile homes and they're all similar asset classes but there's a lot of people who would say oh i don't touch 
mobile homes. So, uh, you know, I just do the triplex and, and they're so focused that they miss out on opportunities. So what's, what's the phrase? Don't miss the forest for the trees, I think. So I, I think the pivot is, is a good point. If you're staying within the general concept, I mean, you can be an expert in understanding buy and hold numbers and buy and hold all kinds of things. Exactly. And, and, you know, we, we went about it. It sounds like we went about it quickly, but we went about it slowly. Uh, I mean, we did one project at a time and, you know, you own other properties too. We've been focused on this farm. Uh, yeah. What else have you done? <laughs> yeah. Well, we own, we own other single family uh, rental properties in, in both Cumberland County and Hornet County. Uh, we own a few multifamily properties. I mean, I would love to get into more multifamily, but it's just difficult where we're at. There's not that many of them. And the ones that are available, they're even, <laughs> there's even more competition than there are for, you know, foreclosures. It just seems like um, you really have to force, you know, the numbers to work on, on some of the multifamily properties. So, um, but yeah, I mean, currently we're working on a, uh, a, a buy and hold rehab that we're almost completed with. So it should hit the market here pretty soon for rent. Um, but I mean, yeah, we're, you know, we're just kind of always trying to grow and, you know, trying to have some project to work on. Cause I think, you know, I'd rather take as a, as a long-term buy and hold investor, I know a lot of people, you know, talk about, you know, only wanting to do, you know, home run deals, which I mean, that I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I mean, if I'm going to buy a property and keep it for, you know, keep it for 20 or 30 years as a rental, um, I mean, do I really care if I buy it at, at 65,000 or at 60,000 or at 58,000, you know, I mean, it's just, I mean, I, I think people get wrapped up in trying to, you know, be impressed by the deal that they get that they, they miss out. You know, there's nothing wrong with a base hit, you know, or a double, you know, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to wait a year to get a home run and only do, you know, one deal a year, you know, because when you're looking at it, you're in it for the long term. I mean, unless you're looking to flip it or do something like that or wholesale. I, I mean, I, that's not my, that's not what I do though. So. I just love your whole persona that you just don't seem that, you know, there's just not that much ego dr driving you. It doesn't seem which, uh, you know, is a, is a very unique phenomenon from my perspective, because I'm only driven by ego. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but no, I mean, it's really important, right? Because what happens is people get into real estate and they get excited and it's a very, um, how do I say it? It's like a really addictive type uh, genre. And so people get in, they're like, man, I'm gonna go all in on real estate, learn, 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 learn. I want to buy, 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 buy. I'm gonna buy 40 units in 2020 and all this stuff. And it's like, man, yeah. you just, you just, it, it's so easy to get wrapped up. And the problem with real estate is it, it's easily lendable by debt. And so you become easily obliged. You can easily oblige yourself to debt and you get wrapped up in these numbers and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, man, if you could really, like, we didn't really talk about it, but Justin, it just seems like, you know, you got your, you got your family, you got work. And then third down here, you have real estate and you keep busy and you do a lot of it. And I'm not trying to dismiss that at all. It's just, it's not the driving force of your ego. And I, and I, and it comes through when you talk and you're like, look, I want to keep myself busy. I want to do this, but I'm not trying to compete with anybody, but I'm just trying to make a retirement for myself. And I love that approach. And I would say that a few of the investors I know with similar mindset seem to be the more successful of the group. I think I'd be uh, remiss if I didn't say that, you know, I, I think it's really important. I, I mean, I'm married and I think it's really important that if, if you're, if you're going to do this and you're going to, you know, try to scale and do it long-term and um, you know, like you said, pivot to things that maybe you didn't think you were going to do originally, 
I mean, it's really important to have a supportive spouse. I think if you don't have, uh, you know, if your other half is not on board, um, it's going to be an uphill battle. Uh, and, and, you know, at, at that point, it, it becomes, you know, what's more important, you know, what you want to do from a real estate perspective or, or your family, you know, and I, I think, um, you know, if my wife hadn't been, had, hadn't had been so, uh, what am I trying to say? If she hadn't have been so supportive, uh, you know, from the time that, you know, we started investing in real estate, there's, there's no way that we would be where we are today. Cause we would have put so many roadblocks that we wouldn't have been able to overcome. Yeah. Yeah. You box yourself into either needing to be a perfect deal or having to ask permission and, and just it. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, I joke all the time. My wife is extremely supportive. However, she is not, I don't want to say she's not involved, but like, you know, she's not like I've, I, I give her a hard time because I bought her rich dad, poor dad, like four years ago and it's been read by like seven other people and she hasn't finished <laughs> it yet. Um, but she's, she's very supportive and she's very all about helping out with stuff. And I see all the time, I mean, investors who either spouse is not on board or spouse wants to wait or spouse's risk tolerance is different. And it, it just, yeah, it's I not mean, easy. Like I'll, I'll put it to you this way. If I had gone to almost anybody else and said, I, I want to build our dream house, but I want our dream house to have an apartment on the second floor and a detached garage with an apartment next door. You know, I can guarantee you that that 90% of spouses out there would say, no way, no how, you know, that's just not going to happen. <laughs> but if we had a dream house, yeah, that's not a dream house. To me, that's a dream house. You know, it's free. You know, it pays for itself. I don't think I've ever paid a, a penny for the house that we live in, uh, in North Carolina. But, you know, had we not done that, I never would have, you know, realized the potential that was untapped for the short, the whole short term rental you know, piece of this, we wouldn't have built a duplex. We wouldn't have bought, you know, the mobile homes. We wouldn't be where we are today. So, um, you know, I, I, I do see on the forums, a lot of, a lot of, uh, people starting out with, Hey, I want a house hack, but, but my, my spouse is not on board. Um, you know, I think that's, I think that's challenging because I think that, that, you know, not having a spouse that's on board can really be a limiting factor in success. Uh, Grant Cardone wrote the book, seller be sold. Um, I know it's not his most popular book, but the message in that book is incredible. And it's like, look, if you can't sell your, look, everything is a sales job, right? If you can't convince the number one person in your life that this is a good idea, how can you possibly convince the rest of the world? How can you convince a stranger to get on board with your idea if you can't convince the person that's supposed to be, you know, your number one? And I know that, you know, hearing that stuff, there's a lot of people out there that are listening that are going to be like, I can't convince my wife. So I'm stuck. And it's like, yeah, yeah, you are stuck. <laughs> no, uh, yeah. but no, that, that is, that is the really important that I, I say that to say, you know, it's a really important, um, uh, responsibility that you have to be able to, to sell the, the people in your immediate circle before you can really sell the outside people. And it doesn't matter maybe for one or two deals, but man, if you want to grow something into something big, it's like, you can't do it against the current, like you said. Yeah. You, you also have to have, you also have to have stable income and good credit. I mean, the people who say you can do something out of nothing. I mean, that's just not my experience. My experience is that if you want to have access to, to funds, if you want to be able to get a loan uh, for a property tomorrow that you found today and not have to rely on hard money and, and all these other things that people talk about, I mean, you need to establish yourself financially. I mean, you need to have a 
you know, a good income or a good savings. You need to maintain your credit. Um, you know, those things are important. I think the people that say that, hey, you can do it with nothing or you can do it with a, with a horrible credit score or, you know, I mean, I, I'm not going to say it's impossible because, I, I mean, I haven't personally, you know, been there or done that. But, I mean, I think you open yourself up to a whole lot more risk um, when you're forced to operate, you know, in that way yeah well it also it's uh it's kind of you're, you're patching the wrong problem you're, you're patching instead of fixing so like you know if you got bad credit everybody's ice that bad credit i'm not you know it's not it's not something that happens to people by accident right it's it's our own uh personal irresponsibility and so sometimes that can be from outside sources for sure um but yeah i mean it's i look at it like this if you're going to go run a business right it has an asset it has a balance sheet and an income statement every business does right does it make money and what and is it you know, overwatering its assets. So, okay, you can't run that asset sheet positively unless you can run your own. And every individual has their own income statement and a balance sheet just because a lot of people don't know it or look at it or know how to put it together. You know, but if that thing runs red, right? If you can't run your own personal finances and your own personal credit, if you can't run it good, you're not going to run the business because you're not going to run the business good. It's like the old saying, how you do one thing is how you do everything. And so I'm with you 100% on that. I agree with that completely if you don't have the money you don't have the credit like now's the time to wait and practice because you're not ready for the big leagues yet not really sure if people can do it i know that somebody's gonna send me an extenuating circumstance like you said most part it's like dude set yourself up for success get your get your systems in place get your credit up get your money right get your wife on board you know and then you you have a, a real estate is very forgiving you have a lot of uh, reasons to be successful but if you go against the grain in all these areas man it makes it so much more hard and I like to think in terms of worst case scenario. So as Alex knows, and those who listen to this, <clears throat> I've had some, some, some hits, taken a few hits this last year. But in all of those, I always ask, like, what's the worst case scenario before I get into this? And the worst case scenario is I take a hit, I lose some money, and I'm still fine. <clears throat> yeah. The people who start off with no credit, no savings, no whatever, if they take, took the same hit that I just took, I mean, that might be it. Like, that, that's just... You know, so that's, I think that's the difference. It's not that it can't be done. It's that what if, right? And what ifs happen? So what if, and then can you survive it, right? And that's, that's the part that scares exactly. me. All right. So with that in mind, got a few questions I always ask. First one being, if an E1, E2 was to walk up to you asking you for advice, what would you tell them? I mean, as far as real estate goes, Sure. I mean, if you have some other wise words, we'll hear them. I mean, I would say that, uh, you know, somebody that junior in, in their career, I mean, first of all, you need to, they probably need to spend some time establishing, you know, whether, whether or not, you know, they like the military and they think it's going to be, you know, a long-term um, uh, career for them. And, and if so, you know, I don't think there's any, any problem, you know, getting involved in real estate, but they need to understand that, you know, they're going to move and, you know, PCSing from one location to another and having real estate, you, you can absolutely do it. Um, but for somebody who's not experienced in real estate, is that something that they, that they really want to get involved with? Because it, it's hard enough learning, you know, the ropes, but it's even harder when, um, you know, you're still relatively, you know, young in your career and and financially you know you may not be as stable as you as you want to be and now you're you know in a in a different location and you're buying another house and then you get pcs again and now you got a third house and you, know, you got three houses in three different states which i know is a, what a lot of people uh, in the military 
community say is, hey, buy a house everywhere you go and, uh, you know, do your 20 years or your 30 years and get out and you'll be set. And I mean, I'm sure that does work, but, you know, you got to think about the other implications of that is there's no, there's no economies of scale there. Now you have three different property managers using, you may have to file three different tax returns, you know, you, you don't have um, the scale in any one area to really develop a team or a base that can be there for you. Um, so that, that's what I would tell them. I would tell them, you know, absolutely look at real estate as, as an avenue, but just know that, um, you know, simply buying real estate everywhere you go may not be, it, it may not be the best option. Yeah. You buy a 30 year mortgage at 20, you know, you're in the military, you're an E nothing. You buy a, a 30 year mortgage. And I'm like, dude, you just committed to a program that lasts longer then your career is going to last and you're only in the first or second year. So yeah. I like that a little more conservative approach. I like that. You said that. Yeah, I well, in, in the VA, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, you're the guest. I think the VA loan is, is a really good, um, it's a really good benefit for, for people in the military. And if you use it too early, you may be shortchanging yourself. You know, I mean, you may be in a, in a low cost living area now and, maybe you get PCS to California and the market's slow and you have this, you have this amazing opportunity to, you know, to potentially um, buy a higher priced house, you know, in a, in a growing economy, you know, you, you may have shortchanged yourself by using that uh, VA loan and a $60,000 house. You know, I, uh, I wrote an article on BP, another test the article, uh, a VA loan is a trap for new investors. And it goes through some of the pitfalls. Like you said, it's like, you know, just cause you have that 0% loan, uh, a zero down loan doesn't mean you should run off and just do it because you know, you see that one piece of it, no money down, but there's, yeah. there are hinges, uh, uh, obstacles. And I've never heard the one you said, and I just love it. It's like you go up, well, but I have to push, I have to ask them, can't you get two VA loans? You can. Um, but let, let's, let's talk about that. Yes, you can, but the funding fee goes up, you know, substantially. Um, and I don't think that, I just don't think it's a long-term solution. I mean, so somebody that is local to Fayetteville reached out to me and they said, Hey, I've just got my, my first property. Yeah, I used my VA loan. What do I do now? And you know, my answer is you save 20%. I mean, that's the, that's the long-term, you know, that's how you grow is you don't rely on all these niche programs that you can get in on. The long-term solutions, you save 20%, you put 20% down and, and you buy an investment property. And that, to me, that's the way it works. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, you can, you know, move every two years and there's all these other approaches that you can do to get, you know, more preferential uh, terms on loans, but if you have a family, if you're, you're not going to, most people don't want to move every two years, you know, if they don't have to. So, and that's not really a sustainable approach, you know, over 30 years, I don't think you don't want to move 15 times, do you? Um, so I think the, you know, you go into it, utilize, you know, the benefits that you can, if you're doing an owner occupant and that works, but if you're looking to, you know, buy three or four or more properties per year, you, you have to get used to you know, hey, I'm gonna have to have some money. I'm gonna have to save. I'm gonna have to. I bought more houses last year than I bought shoes or you know or pants. You know, it's like you have to downsize other parts of your life if you want to have the ability to, um, you know, grow. You know, there's no easy button. I like I that. that. Yeah, I'm gonna have to try to steal that quote and turn it into a quote image or whatever they call those things. I mean, I can't tell you how many times people have have noticed that. I've got a hundred and fifty dollar cell phone from Amazon, or um, you know, like, I, I, or I have, I have presents on here. Okay, you got to step up, Justin. 
I know I've got I have cricket wireless for cell phone service. I mean, but you know, this just you know it works for me. And you know, why spend five hundred dollars on an iPhone when I can spend one hundred fifty dollars on a phone that works just as good for me? You hey, know? weren't you but, weren't you busting my chops about wearing the same T-shirt? That was me. Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't have an iPhone either because you know they suck and they're just for status. No, I'm just kidding. You know, I mean, I don't say that. You know, just, I know, I know. I just, I just say that. Like, I don't live a lifestyle that I, I could afford to live a much better lifestyle than I do. I mean, I drive an old car. I don't, you know, I don't have the nicest, newest things. I don't have um, a, a lot of the gadgets that I see people, you know, that can't afford it have. And, and I think the trade-off is that, well, guess what? I get to save the twenty percent for the next house that I want to buy. You know, that's that's the difference. You know. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, so what is one resource, book, course, website, whatever, that you would recommend to anybody looking to get started in real estate investing? I mean, I have to say you can't discount the the amount of knowledge and resources that you can gain from both Bigger Pockets and YouTube. I think if you spend some time on Bigger Pockets and you spend some time watching YouTube videos, I mean, it's not hard to find the, the content creators in, on the real estate side of YouTube that really have some good uh, information and it's free, you know? Um, I mean, the thing about bigger pockets now is it's gotten just so huge that, you know, like four or five years ago when, when I was, you know, really, um, you know, following it closely, it was, it was a little bit different than it is today, but still, I mean, you just have to be able to filter out all the noise and get to, you know, get to the, you know, the real good, um, you know, information that's available. I, I'm not, I'm going to be honest. I'm not a, big on books. I, I mean, I don't read a whole lot of books. I, I do most of my, like I said, I, I pay for a lot of the experience that I've, uh, that I've learned in real estate just by doing it. I hate you. <laughs> just it's so funny. you know, that's it's it. I hate you. It's funny because I'm glad you said that a second time. Cause I muted you knowing that you were going to come back with something when he said he hates books. <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> uh, hey, actually what's interesting about bigger pockets. And I meant to tell you this, um, I meant to message you this. I was going through my bigger pockets for some reason. I was I was trying to pull up an old message from Mindy from like six years ago. So I'm going through my old messages on bigger pockets. And this is if you've been on BP for a long time, this is a really interesting exercise. I went back, and do you know that you and I talked like six years ago? And I had forgotten all about it. We exchanged one short message. It was like, hey, I'm in, looking in North Carolina. And you're like, yeah, I'm doing something or other. You were not, uh, that was it. It was like, I said something, you said something, that was it. Uh, but I, th I think it's interesting, uh, the BP, you know, the community. And like you said, yeah, it's got a little saturated, so it's harder now. Okay. But the people who stuck around that website kind of seem to stick around. So if you get on there, you message people, you'd be surprised how those, um, how those relationships compound. I mean, that's not why you and I are friends now, but I think it's telling that it's like, yeah, but we could have been if maybe one of us had, uh, you know, uh, kept that communication chain going. So I think it, I just thought it was an interesting thing that you say that. It's also fun to be able to go in and you can see, and I did this to Alex at one point, but you can see the first post people ever made. So you can go in and be like, oh, that was click. Um, but on that note, uh, we need to wrap this up. So where can people get a hold of you, Justin? I am on Bigger Pockets. You can find me there. Uh, I mean, I'm sure my email, I gave you my email address. I don't know if you post that, you know, on the show notes. Yeah. But that that's primarily the, probably the best way to get a hold of me is just shoot me an email if, if you have... Uh, I need to connect. Sounds good. I will put the email down in the show notes for those of you who are listening. And uh, yeah, Justin, thank you very much. This has been awesome. Thank you for having me. And I'm going to come stay in your farm sometime. <laughs> well, the open invitation for either one of you guys. Woo. All right. You guys have a good one.
Thanks, you too. Thank you for listening to another episode about my journey from military to millionaire. If you liked it, be sure to visit from com slash podcast to subscribe to future podcasts. While you're there, we'd love for you to rate the show, give us a review on iTunes. Now get out there and take action.